Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Hey, we are in part two of our series titled Jesus for Grownups. Here's one thing that we are going to come back to over and over and over again throughout this series. And this is so important, friends. And if you get nothing else out of this, to this message or this entire series, know this as a fact. Jesus is what humanity was supposed to be. We discussed last week how all of our relationships are broken, and, and you experience this every single day, every week, you get this, right? Our relationship to God is certainly broken, our relationship to, our, to, to other people is broken, to the planet, to creatures, to, to our finances, to, I mean, really every relationship that we have is broken. But for Jesus, they weren't. They weren't broken for Jesus. He lived rightly and in right relationship with everything and everyone, though not everybody lived rightly towards him, right? He lived rightly towards everything and everyone. And he calls us to follow him. He is calling us to right relating as well. That's that's such a huge part of what it means to follow Jesus is learning to relate rightly with all of these relationships. That's what righteousness means, relating the way that we are created to relate. And so when Jesus calls us to a righteous life, he's not calling us to a self-righteous life where we think we are better than other people. He's calling us to a righteous life where we relate rightly the way that we are created to relate. Jesus is literally the model for humanity. Paul wrote to the Colossians that Jesus was, uh, that all things were created through Jesus. Jesus was the mold that humanity was pushed out of. Kind of weird way to think about it, but as God was creating humanity, he used Jesus as the mold that he was going to push humanity out of. And at the end of the day, our hope in venturing through the life and teachings of Jesus and learning his story is that we might, lo- we might become like him again. At the end of the day, that is my hope for every single one of us here, that we might become more like Christ because of our time together, that we would let go of our selfish ways and instead we would cling to God's love and surrender. And we would allow him to form and to shape more and more of our heart and more and more of our mind into his image. That is my hope for every single one of us. That is the reason why we're doing a series like this. Something I say often is that your relationship with God will impact every relationship you have. You guys know this. Your relationship with God will impact and inform every relationship you have. The closer you get to Jesus, the healthier your relationships are going to be. The reason there's strife in your marriage, the reason there's strife in your household with your neighbors or at work is because one or more of you is far from Jesus. And I say that seriously, like I literally mean that. The reason that there is strife in any relationship that you have is because one or more of you is far from Jesus. That is why there is problems in your relationship. The closer you get to Jesus and are conformed to his image, the healthier relationships are going to be. And so my prayer for every single one of us, and this is including me, this is including my household, is that there would be more of Jesus, less of me. More of Jesus, less of me. More of Jesus, less of me. I cannot do this for you, though. You guys get that, right? Like, as much as I want to tell you and convince you that this is the way that you should be living, I cannot do it for you. I can only teach you. 
I can only inspire you. I can only hope and pray for you. But I cannot surrender for you. But I hope that throughout this series, I hope that the groups that we're offering, I hope that the community that you find yourselves in, and this is why we implore you and encourage you beyond the, the great community that you'll, you'll be able to establish, that you will learn to be like Jesus because this will form and shape the health of every relationship that you have. And so, Jesus for grown-ups. Today we are discussing the baptism of Jesus. If you have your text with you, whether an app form or hard copy, I'd encourage you, we're going to be going through the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, the very beginning today. You may be wondering what Jesus being dunked in a river 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world has to do with you and my friends beside maybe the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus is probably the most significant story that it will impact your life. What Jesus is communicating through his baptism is the most significant portion of the story for us today. And so, my friends, I really, really encourage you to pay attention. I don't know how much sleep you got last night, but try to jolt yourself awake. Get on the edge of your seats because we're in for a wild ride this morning, all right? Who's excited? I love it. Thank you. Jesus is born. The long-awaited Davidic king has come. The one through whom the world will be made right is born. That was last week, if you were with us. You can go back and listen to all the previous messages on our uh, podcast, our Facebook page. You can watch them live, um, our media tab, our website, all sorts of ways to listen. But as you turn the Gospel of Matthew over from chapter 2 to chapter 3, 30 years have gone by. We don't know what happened necessarily. Luke shares one little story about when Jesus was 12 years old, but we have nothing in between Jesus' birth and when he is 30 years, according to Matthew. But we are introduced in chapter 3 to this crazy-looking, wild-eyed, hippie of a man dressed in camel hair. His beard is all sticky with honey. He smells of locusts. His name is John the Baptist. He wasn't John the Presbyterian. He wasn't John the Methodist. He was John the Baptist. I stole that from Andy Stanley, actually. So uh, that is a joke. That's not true. Those distinctions weren't made then. Okay, that's a joke. He was John, the one who baptizes. Okay, that's why they call it John the Baptist, the one who baptizes. Here's what he said. Verse 1 of chapter 3 of Matthew. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who is spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John is painting this picture of what they knew as a common scene in their day. When the king was traveling, as they would approach a village or a city, they would send out a heralder or a trumpeter and they would announce the coming of the king. The king is coming, prepare yourselves prepare your town the king will be here shortly the king is arriving soon they blow their horn they announce that the king was approaching now we don't get this in our day and age because uh, we have news channels and social media that does this for us but when the president were to come into levittown right there'd be a motorcade and there'd be a, a great corruption of this uh, uh maybe corruption there, there'd be a, <laughs> interruption disruption is what i meant to say thank you interruption I mean, but come on, that might have been prophetic, I don't know. There, there, there would be disruption, there would be an interruption, right? We, we, people would notice, the motorcade is coming, we'd get excited, the king is coming. <clears throat> there, there, 
There's a general principle, though. There's a general principle that, that goes something like this. When the cat's away, the mice will play, right? When the cat's away, the mice will play. The only fight that I ever got in, I was in seventh grade. This is a true story. I was in seventh grade. The, I was in math class, and the teacher said, I need to go, for about five minutes, I need to go make copies. And this kid, about four seats in front of me, stood up from his desk. His name was Justin. He was about this, this tall. He, came, he literally, he came up about here on me. And, uh, and he approached me to pick a fight with me in the middle. So we got in one fight in the middle of math class. When the cat was away, the mice will play. But now the cat is back, John is saying. And, oh crap, when the cat comes back, he's going to realize I don't have my life in order. I, I haven't done my taxes. I haven't been paying tribute. My life is a mess. Or, or to put it into context, maybe we can relate better to, we've seen this scenario a million times in movies. Maybe you've experienced this scenario firsthand. Your parents, you're in high school, your parents go away for the weekend. What do you do? You throw a party. Well, come on, you throw a party, right? You go to the party. And then you realize, you know, the next morning that your house is trashed and you've done all sorts of things that maybe you weren't supposed to do or you shouldn't have done. And you wake up and you're like, holy, oh, my, my house is completely trashed. But you take a deep breath. It's okay. My parents are going to come home till later, you know, later tomorrow maybe. And then you look at your text and your mom says, no, we're on our way. We'll be home in 30 minutes. And you start to think, holy crap, the cat is coming back, right? I'm going to be in trouble. My parents are coming back. When the cat's away, the mice will play. But what happens when the cat comes back? Right? There's a problem. Or it's like getting word that your landlord is coming, right? The owner of the house that you are renting is coming back, and you're like, oh, crap, I better mow my lawn, right? I, sh- I should probably fix the spills. I should probably fix the things that I've broken, clean up the, the, the yard, or else I'm going to get evicted, and I'm going to get thrown out. And so the authority is arriving, John is saying. The, the king is coming back. The authority is arriving, and your house is a mess. The king, the king is coming. Your town is a mess. God is coming, and your life is a mess. So John's encouragement is, clean up before your parents get home. Get your house in order before the landlord arrives. Turn from your wicked ways. Repent, because the king is coming back. People heard this message, and they came out in droves, confessing their sins in preparation for the arrival of the king. We're told in verse 5, people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But there was another response to the king. You know, there was all these people who were really sinful, living really horrible lives, and of course they went and got dunked in the river because they wanted to repent of their sins. But there was a whole other group of people that would say, Excellent! I cannot wait for the king to return to see how good I've been. I cannot wait for the king to return to see how, how much tribute I've, I've given him and how many times I've kissed his picture. I cannot wait for the king to return because I have one of his sayings tattooed on my arm and I have his symbol hung around my neck and I have a picture of him on my wall. I cannot wait for the king to return to see how good of a person I have been. He is going to praise me up and down. I cannot wait for the king to return. He will be so pleased with me. These were the Pharisees and the Sadducees of John's day, the teachers and the keepers of the law and they assumed that because they were devoted Jews that they were descendants of Abraham, they were the people of God so they must be on God's good side. But here's what John says. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. 
I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. No, the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So, you who think you're all self-righteous, you who think you're so good, you who think you've done so many great things that the Lord is just going to smile upon you when He returns, that God is lucky to have you on His team, you think that God looks so favorably on you because of your self-righteousness? No, you too, He would say, are destined for judgment. You too need to repent because your religion is merely a disguise for your sinful heart. So there are really only two types of people if you think about it. There's those sinners who know it, and there's sinners who don't want to admit it. That's it. And John is saying that the king is coming, and when he arrives, no one is safe from his judgment. So confess your sins, get into the water, and change your ways. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and he will baptize you with fire. His winnowing fork is already in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and bring up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The king is coming with the wind of fire and with the wind of judgment. See, the image John gives is the separating of grain from the stalk. After the grain has been loosened on the threshing floor, a farmer would come with a winnowing fork, and he would take that grain, he would toss it high up into the air, and the grain would fall to the ground, and the wind would blow all the chaff, all the, all the waste away with the wind, and it would be gone. That's what the king will do, he says, when he arrives. He's going to separate, separate the reprobate from the faithful. He's going to separate the sinners from the repentant. And the Jewish expectation was that there would be a great divide in history. That when God returned, he would judge the wicked and elevate the righteous as he created the new heavens and the new earth. Judgment is coming, John would say, so repent. Now, I get that this might be a trigger for some of you. Some of you, from when you were very young, were given a picture of a heavy-handed God with fire in his eyes. That was coming for you because you were told that you were a bad little girl and you were a mean little boy. And you know what God does to bad little girls and mean little boys? Well, he punishes them. And so you were given a picture of a God with fire in his eyes and a heavy hand and he was coming to judge you. And you were told this by people in authority. You were told this by people who stood on stages like me or people in classrooms who taught you about who God is. Now, on the other hand, some of you were given a, a, a different picture of God. You grew up in an opposite context with people in authority who stood on stages like this or stood in classrooms and taught you about who God was. They dismissed the idea that judgment was even part of the narrative, that God was only gracious, that God was only loving all of the time. And often we find ourselves drifting, I think, to one end of a spectrum when we draw pictures of God. We think either God is all grace or God is all wrath. But I want you to consider... That love actually holds both of these in tension. I mean, think about this. What, what type of world would be created if everything was permitted because grace was universally extended all of the time? What kind of world would be created if, if you were allowed, or if anybody was allowed, if the world was allowed to do whatever they want to whomever they want whenever they wanted? If grace was all there was, you would be free to do whatever to whomever, whenever you want. It would be anarchy. 
But you don't want that. As, as much as you might think you want that for yourself, wow, wouldn't it be great to have full autonomy? Wouldn't it be great to do whatever I wanted whenever I wanted? That would be amazing. You don't actually want that. You might want it for yourselves, but you don't want that power for other people. You don't want them to be able to do whatever they want to whomever they want because you are going to be on the tail end of that recipient. You're going to be the recipient of them doing whatever they want whenever they want. And you don't want that. It would be complete anarchy. And you constantly experience the consequence of their selfish freedom. And so think of someone who has been selfish towards you and how much that has hurt. It probably doesn't take very long to think back in your own past to someone who has been selfish towards you and how much that has hurt. Now think of that universally extended to all people at all times. It would be complete chaos. We do not actually want that. But deep within our bones, we actually long for justice. But think of the other end. What what kind of world would it be if God's wrath was universal, if there was no mercy, if sin got what it deserved? If God's wrath was poured out upon sin as it happened, we would cease to exist. Our first breath would be our last breath upon this planet. And so love keeps both grace and judgment in tension. But love does not mean, as many people have tried to convey and suggest over the years, that we won't face judgment. Everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I know some of you, your blood pressure is rising as I say this kind of thing. And so can we just take a minute and collectively take a deep breath? A few things to note regarding judgment as it's described in the Bible. The first thing I want you to know, and for some of you, this is so important because it rubs directly against the grain of the picture of God that you have painted and the picture of God that you've been given. God does not delight in punishment. Understand that, please. God does not delight in punishment, but punishment is necessary. Ezekiel 18 to 33, if you're interested, they go into long discourses showing this to be true. But let me tell you a little story about my daughter, Evelyn, to show us a little example of this. My daughter, Evelyn, is an angel. She's an angel, except when she's not, right? If you know her, she's an angel. If you've ever seen her, she's still an angel, except when she's not. She is small, but she is fierce. And sometimes she's straight up nasty. She's a nasty brat, and I tell her that all the time. Sometimes I tell her all the time that I love you too much to let you be a nasty brat. She knows that. If I tell her, Evelyn, I love you too much, I know to be a nasty brat. I know. I love her too much to let her be a nasty brat. I love her too much to let her be greedy. I love her too much to let let her be selfish. I love her too much to let her live in sin where death thrives. And here's the thing thing about our relationship with God. When we step outside the the realm of right living, of, of right relating, when we step outside the realm of life and we step in and we venture into selfish, sinful living where we hurt and where we hurt others, God loves us too much to let us stay there. And so like a good parent, punishment is intended to bring us back to the realm of life. Punishment is always restorative, and it should be in the way you parent your kids, by the way. 
Your, your, your discipline of your children should always be restorative, not just punitive. Don't just punish them for the sake of punishing. They're never going to learn anything. But we are striving to help people come back into the realm of life where right relating takes place. The second thing I want you to know is that God is just. He is fair and his judgments are right because he sees all and he knows all. When people ask me what happens to little babies who die, or, or those people who have never heard you know, of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that he's done for them, well, I have a lot of thoughts on those, but the bottom line, when the dust settles, the point is God is just. He's going to do what he knows is best and fair and what is right. And he is a God of love, and so he is going to do what he knows is just and fair and right. And in that vein, judgment does not equate to condemnation. Judgment is about separation. Condemnation may be the result of judgment, but salvation might also be the result of judgment. And judgment in Scripture is Satan's condemnation, not ours. You might think of it this way. What God separates at judgment is the work of Satan in one's life from the work of Christ in one's life. The reason Jesus died was so that he could condemn sin. That's the fifth point. This is why Jesus died, so that he could condemn sin, so that we could stand before God not condemned. He condemned sin. He became sin, and he put sin to death, so we could stand before God not condemned. He took the judgment and condemnation of sin upon himself, in other words. But because he had not sinned himself, there was nothing to condemn him of, so the resurrection takes place, and he rises to life. You see, the picture that John the Baptist is giving of God, that he's painting of God as a returning king with fire in his eyes and the wind of destruction at his back, it's a fire and brimstone kind of message that he's kind of, you know, bringing upon the people and these wicked sinners, a picture of a vengeful God who's looming over cowering sinners. And, and that may have been the Jewish expectation, that when the king returns, he's going to do away with the unrighteous, these oppressive Romans, all the people who have, who have, you know, done horrible things in, in this world, and he's going to leave us, the faithful Jews, the righteous Jews, to live forever with him. But I think the clearest picture of what judgment will be like or feel like in Scripture is actually found way back in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had just th- sinned. They throw all of chaos back into the darkness from which God had, you know, been working so hard to bring the creation out of. And then they're standing there before God and they're ashamed and God approaches them and God approaches them slowly and God approaches them calmly and, and he simply asks this question. What have you done? What have you done? God doesn't approach them with fire in his eyes and a gavel in his hand ready and waiting to condemn them to torment. He's calm and he's concerned for their well-being. He wants to get to the truth so that he can deal with what has taken place, but it gets complicated as the story goes. And our response to this question, our response will either invite our condemnation or our salvation. Telling the truth is hard because we immediately equate being guilty with being condemned. But that's not where God immediately goes. Adam and Eve's response was to what? To run? To hide, to conceal, to justify, to deny, to blame shift. There's maybe more that we can do, you know, when we're, when we're caught in a lie, but this, this is typically our response to sin. And I, I don't think it's just Adam and Eve, right? How many of you have ever done one of these things when you find yourself to be guilty? It's a, it's a human response to run and hide and conceal and justify and deny and blame shift. 
You know, Jesus says that we're going to be held accountable for every single word that comes out of our mouth. And so God might simply ask you, did you really speak that way to her? Yeah, well, God, you know, you, you should have heard the way that she was speaking to me. Well, you know, well, I was drunk, and so it doesn't count, right? That's, it doesn't count when you don't actually control your actions. Well, you know, I had a hard day at work, and she just set me off. Well, everybody speaks to their wife that way. Did you steal that food? What food? What are you talking about, God? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, my friends were betting me that I wouldn't, and so I had to. And by the way, they, they did it too, and so it's not like they're innocent. I was starving. I, I had to feed my family. Did you cheat on that test? Yeah, 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 but God, if, if I didn't get the good grade that I wouldn't have gotten to the college that I really wanted to get into. Did you murder him? Well, there's no evidence that I did, so... Besides, he deserved it. I mean, we could spend the rest of our days going over examples of things we do and things we say and the sins that we commit. We're all sinners. We've all done things. And at our judgment, God will simply ask this question, is it true? What have you done? Is it true? And our response will either invite our condemnation or it will invite our salvation. And this is why we must practice telling the truth. This is why we implore our children not to keep secrets from us. No matter how ugly it may appear, because if you've spent your whole life denying reality, if you've spent your whole life making up a version of yourself that isn't honest, you'll have practiced justifying and denying and concealing and hiding and blame shifting so much that you're not even going to have the ability to speak the truth when the time comes when it matters most. But if you can look at God in the eyes and simply respond, I did it. It's true. Every single thought, every single word, every single action, I did it. It's true. And I trust that Jesus paid for every single one of them. I trust that I am covered with the blood of Christ and I don't place my invitation to salvation upon my own efforts or upon my own good work, but upon the work and the efforts of Christ. I don't place the invitation to my salvation upon my righteous deeds, but upon Christ's righteous deeds. And I think God will say, you have known my love. Enter into the paradise that I have prepared for you. Friends, this isn't the children's Bible version of the story that just pats you on the back and, you know, sings, Jesus loves me, this I know, as we enter into paradise. There is real judgment and there is real condemnation of sin. But for those who have trusted in Christ, it took, he took it all. And in a remarkable exchange, compelled by his love, he gave us his life. And now we can say with confidence, like Paul wrote to the Romans, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So can we together take a deep breath, a sigh of relief, and praise God by declaring his goodness? Admittedly, the Jews didn't understand what God was doing in all this. 
doing in Jesus even. Jesus initiated what theologians call an inaugurated eschatology. It looks something like this. It's a little complicated. I'm not going to go over all the details, but new creation established with his resurrection is running parallel to the old creation. And as Jesus returns, new creation will be fully realized. John the Baptist has an image of God coming in judgment to divide history in half, but that's not what Jesus came to inaugurate. It's not what John was expecting when Jesus came onto the scene. And so John wasn't expecting what happened next when Jesus came to him. We're told in verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, No, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper of us to do this to fulfill all righteousness, right relating to make humanity what they were supposed to be. And then John consented. Jesus arrives here as a king not to divide history in half and with some great display of power and liberation release the Jews from these pagan governments and judge sinners as the world is made new. Jesus doesn't approach John as John was expecting Jesus to approach him. See, the Jews thought their righteousness would save them on the day of judgment, not realizing that no one is righteous before a holy God. All have sinned, all have failed, all are guilty, all are screwed and deserving of God's wrath and condemnation. But in his love, God sent Jesus to step into the gap and make a way for salvation to even be possible by carrying our sin to the cross and condemning it there so that we could be free. You see, Jesus in his baptism isn't identifying with the God who is coming in judgment, but Rather, he's identifying with the very people who are broken and in need of rescue. This is like Jesus is arriving as king, and instead of hiding behind a wall of police officers and security guards, as he applies rules and demands allegiance or campaigns for himself, this is Jesus breaking through the walls of separation to be with the people. He goes to the house that hasn't you know, mowed their lawn, And he helps them fix their lawnmower, and then he starts pulling out weeds. He goes to the house that hasn't paid their taxes, and he downloads TurboTax, and he sits alongside them as they do it together. He helps them get through their challenges. He goes to the homeless shelter and eats alongside the hurting. He goes to where the people are to show that he is for the people. But notice that he does not go to dismiss their sin by his grace, but with compassion, which is just a word that means to suffer with, right? To be alongside people. He elevates us to a healthier life, a life that looks like his, a life that is more Jesus and less of us. This is why Jesus came near. Jesus did not need the baptism of repentance. This is not what he is doing when he gets baptized. Jesus never sinned, and so he didn't need to repent of sin. Jesus didn't sin, but he is identifying with sinful humanity so that he can fulfill the vocation of humanity and take humanity's place in judgment. I want to invite Kate forward, and she's going to sing a song for us as we conclude our time together. Every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have a version of Jesus' baptism story or at least the context for his baptism story. In John's version of the story, when John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching, he says something that would have been very confusing in his day, but would have been equally remarkable in his day. 
Here's what he says as he sees Jesus approaching. He says, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, some of you are at a place where maybe for the very first time, you're realizing your sin is too much to carry. Your sin is causing too much pain. Your sin is hurting too many people. Your, your sin is hurting yourself. It's destroying your marriage. It's destroying your relationship with your kids. Your, your kids are estranged. It's destroying your work. It's not making you want to get out of bed in the morning. It's destroying your life. Look. It's the Lamb of God. Jesus. Who has come to bring a solution to your sin to your pain, to your problem. He has come to carry it away. I don't know where all of you are at. I don't know where all of your relationships are at this morning. As Emily has mentioned, you know we're, we're privy to a number of the scenarios that many of you are facing right now, and we know that there are a lot of challenges. We know that there's a lot of hurt. We know that a lot of you are crying for justice and wondering where it is in the world. We're... It's the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. And the closer that you get to Jesus, the healthier your relationships are going to be. I don't know if you believe that yet for yourselves. I cannot force that upon you. I can only try to inspire you towards it and convince you of it. But my hope and my prayer for every single one of us is that we would stop these worldly coping mechanisms, these, these man-made solutions, these man-made attempts at fixing the sin that we all have. But we would come to the Lamb of God, the one who was sacrificed on our behalf, who took our condemnation, our sin, our guilt to the cross so that we could stand before God not condemned. And that we could accept his invitation into eternal life. And so if you are at that point this morning where you have never accepted Christ, then here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to say a prayer for us, and this isn't a magical prayer. But if you pray it along with me with contrition in your heart and you just acknowledge that you need Christ in your life and you're ready to surrender your own self-made attempts at the solutions and you're ready to come to Christ and surrender, then you will begin. You will begin a journey towards a healthier life, a better life. I promise you, following Jesus will not only make your life better, it will make you better at life. And so if you say this prayer with me, just bow our heads, we're going to say a prayer, and then we're going to sing a song, and we're going to glorify God for all that he has done for us, because we are all deserving of judgment, and yet, through Christ, through what he has accomplished, we are not condemned. And that is certainly something to praise God for this morning. Heavenly Father, I admit for me and whoever is saying this prayer, Father, on their behalf, I admit that I am a sinner, that every thought, every word, every action, Father, it is true. I've hurt people. I am hurt within myself. I cannot carry this weight any longer, Father. I acknowledge it. I own it. I admit it. And so I lay it before you, Father, in all honesty, it is bare. It is here for you to examine and to know I do not deny any of it. I, I, I refuse to conceal and to hide and to blame shift and to justify and deny any longer, Father. But I surrender 
I come clean. It's true of me, Father. It's true. It is true. It is true. I am a sinner deserving of your wrath. But I thank you, Father, for I have trusted in Christ and what he has accomplished for me through the shedding of his blood, through taking my sin to the cross, nailing it there, condemning it in his flesh. He lived a perfect life. And, and yet he was not deserving of this, Father, but compelled by love, he came to take my place. And I am so grateful, and I trust in him. Right now, I trust in him even more so than I did yesterday. I put more of my life into his caring hands, into his loving hands. I surrender more, Father, less of me, less of me, less of me, more of Jesus, please. And so thank you, Father, for what you've accomplished for me and for us Thank you for saving me. Thank you for inviting me into salvation, for not condemning me, but condemning sin through the shed blood of Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Amen. So you need to know that if if you have committed your life to Christ, we want to grow with you. We do not want to keep you a baby. Christian, feeding on spiritual milk. We want to grow you up into the likeness of Christ. And so, starting point, story about a story, one and two, house groups, other courses, get involved, get plugged in, friends. If you have never received a Bible, if you have never told anyone that you've accepted Christ, we want to celebrate with you and we want to help you on this journey. Tell us at the Connect Here um, booth in the back. We have a Bible for you if you don't have one yourselves. It's got a reading plan. Start reading the story of Jesus for yourself. We would love to interact with you, so please do not leave here before you told someone that you have accepted Christ as your Savior.